The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. I remember one time we were walking along and he said, Oh yeah, I remember last time you were up here, you had those 505s with the scuff on the back of the right leg. (laughs) I I had to go check my pants when I got home to see if that was even there, and he was right about it. So he was really tuned into that. This week on Science for the People, we're exploring faces. We all have them, we see them everywhere, and we need to recognize them to get by. Today, we'll learn about the people who are super face recognizers and those on the opposite side of the spectrum. We'll also talk about how twins fare at telling the differences between their faces and how this might relate to perception of identity. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Today, we're talking with Dr. Brad Duchesne, professor of psychology in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Dartmouth College. His lab's research focuses on social perception, and in particular, how humans process information about faces. So today, we'll be picking his brain about faces and some psychological conditions that affect how we see them. Dr. Duchesne, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there's a large body of research in social psychology and neuroscience devoted exclusively to face processing and how primates and humans perceive faces. So what is it that is so special about faces that there's so much research in it and that your research career has been devoted to face recognition? Well, I think there's at least two factors that um, cause so many researchers to be interested in it. First is, you know, as any all your listeners can you know, are aware of, we spend a lot of time looking at faces. So when we're interacting with other people, we're looking at their faces for the great majority of that time. And we're extracting a lot of information when we do look at the face. Of course, you know, we use the face to tell us who somebody is, but beyond that we also can get a feel for what their mood is, what they're attending to. We make judgments about attractiveness from faces. And so there's just an awful lot of information that we're extracting every time we look at a face. And the second reason that it's interesting to scientists is that um, face processing is a really nice model system to try to understand how visual recognition works and and even more largely how the brain works. Uh, Because we know that there are a number of processes that appear to be specialized for faces that are, say, different than the way we recognize other sorts of objects. And those areas have been identified in both humans and also in um, non-human primates. So there are animal models for face processing. So it's an area where there are a lot of different ways that you can approach trying to understand how face processing works. So you mentioned that it's a good model for learning about visual processing in general. Um, so how, what do we know about how we process faces and what are the steps from the projection of an image of a face on the retina to actually recognizing a person as someone you know? Sure. So if we were to look, so of course there's the early visual processes that occur. So, you know, there's activity in the retina and then that gets transmitted to thalamus and then back to the uh, early visual areas. And then information flows into face processing areas. And I call them face processing areas because these are areas that if we were to put somebody into a scanner and we looked at their response to faces and objects, we would find they sh- these areas show an especially strong response to faces. And then there's been, most of this work has gone on in non-human primates, but when you record from the neurons within these face areas, you find that these areas are composed almost entirely of cells that 
respond to faces and faces only. So we've got these little sort of blueberry-sized bits of cortex inside our brain. And in our in each hemisphere, in our occipital and temporal lobes, we've probably got about five or six of these areas, so 12 across the two hemispheres. Then there are also some face-selective areas uh, up in the frontal lobe, although those areas might not be strictly dedicated to face processing. So we've got this network of different regions in the brain that's that talk to one another and um, build up a representation of that face that's being uh, viewed. We don't. What we don't have a good understanding of is what are the computational steps that are involved in developing that representation. At this point, we've sort of taken the first step in, in knowing sort of what areas of the brain are involved, but we don't understand how the neurons actually do their work. So, uh, you know, faces as it is a sort of category of objects, right? Um, right. As compared to you know, other objects that are at least somewhat omnipresent, kind of like faces. So, you know, you see your toothbrush every day or utensils or cars. So uh, is the difference between the processing, visual processing of, of commonplace objects and faces mostly these specialized areas in the brain? Could you, could you ask, clarify that a little? I didn't totally follow. So when you are processing uh, any visual object, um, yes. and the information is sent higher up in brain processing stream. Uh, once there, I'm just wondering, like, is there a point where if it was an object, uh, would that information, uh, it wouldn't act be handled? Same... Would it be handled differently? Yeah. As yes. As how faces are handled. Yeah. So let's say we were talking about how a body is processed. Well, Bodies activate a different set of selective areas in the brain. There, there are body selective areas, just like there are face selective areas. There are also areas that are scene selective. So these areas appear to be especially important for our ability to represent and recognize visual scenes. Um, and then there's just sort of the general category of objects, which we actually, even though we spend an awful lot of time looking at objects, we don't have a great sort of understanding about how they're represented because and kind of what they're processed by is what you might think of as kind of a default system that handles categories for which we don't have special procedures for. Uh, but yeah, so the processing is definitely different for different categories of stimuli. And so clearly we have these specialized networks for processing face stimuli. Um, I guess which means that the human brain is maybe more susceptible to having deficits in, in recognition of faces and maybe other specific objects. So uh, one condition in which face recognition is affected that you've done a fair bit of research on is prosopagnosia. Uh, could you tell our listeners what prosopagnosia is? Sure. So prosopagnosia is a deficit that people who, in people who have uh, impairments in recognizing facial identity. Um, so they might go to the daycare center to pick up their child, and if the child's changed clothes, they might not know which child is theirs. Um, they might have a tough time recognizing their own face in a group photo, for example. Now, that's not to say that these prosopagnosics have zero ability to recognize faces, but they're much worse than other people. So is there a spectrum of, of face recognition ability even within prosopagnosic people? Yeah, and there's a spectrum beyond prosopagnosic people. So you can think about face recognition ability as 
you know, it might be normally distributed. We don't have a real good feel for what the distribution looks like, but there are people in one tail, the prosopagnosic tail, who are very bad at face recognition. And then, and then at the other end of the distribution, there are people that we call super recognizers who are just off the charts when it comes to recognizing facial identity. And then somewhere in between is the great majority of the population. And those differences between people within the sort of normal uh, regions of the, the curve, those are reliable differences. So some people might be around 75th percentile, other people might be around the 25th percentile. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll really delve into these two extremes in this talk, but focusing on, on the on prosopagnosia now, uh, what is it like the experience? I know you personally probably don't have it, but you've interacted with a lot of people that do. And I'm you know, there's all these depictions online of what it would be like to have this sort of trouble recognizing faces where faces seem blurred or everyone has the same facial features. And uh, I'm just not sure how accurate these are. Yeah, it's not that they're blurred. I mean, I'm not prosopagnosic, so this is secondhand. But what they tell me is they see the face there. They just have a tough time seeing differences between faces, and they have a tough time recognizing that face as one they've seen before. One thing I've likened to the experience of looking at a face for prosopagnosics is if you turn a face upside down, um, you can immediately sense that you're not extracting information from that upside down face in the same way you do from an upright face. It's more difficult to see the, what the sex of that face is. It's more difficult to know who the person is. It's more difficult to know how attractive you find that face. And so, and yet, nevertheless, the eyes are still there. The nose is there. It's a mouth. It's clear. It's a face. And so you might imagine that prosopagnosics have a similar experience when they look at an upright face. And in fact, if we look at how prosopagnosics do with face perception tasks with upright faces, they often score similarly on those tasks with upright faces that normal participants do with upside down faces. Hmm. So do they see uh, features in their entirety? Facial features? That's, that's, yeah, that's a good question. And we don't really know the answer to that. There's some evidence, some fMRI hint, evidence hinting that prosopagnosics don't they they sort of you can imagine they've got sort of smaller windows that they're looking at the face through um however we we just had a paper except a couple months ago in which we found that the influence of the lower half of the face on the people's perception of the top half of the face was comparable for prosopagnosics and for controls so the jury's out on whether they're not seeing the entire face sort of mm-hmm. holistically in the same way other people do mm. Could you describe uh, this this idea about holistic processing of faces and and what that means and why it's common to most people? Sure. Um, so this was people. Well, people had this idea had been around a long time that we process faces more holistically than other stimuli. And the idea here is that um, we're able to look at a face and in one glance just represent lots of different parts simultaneously. Whereas when we look at say, an upside-down face, we have to go more feature-to-feature, attend to this feature, attend to this feature, and we're just not able to grab the face as a whole in one quick glance. Um, And the best evidence that upright face processing really involves something more holistic than most other stimuli um, comes from an effect 
that was first discovered 30-some years ago, well, 30 years ago now, by Andy Young over in England. And what Andy did was he had people trying to recognize the top halves of famous faces. So imagine a photo of Margaret Thatcher's face. You're just seeing the top half of it. It's split around the um, bridge of the nose. So you see the eyes and the eyebrows and the forehead. And then that top half of the face would be aligned with a someone else's bottom half of the face. So it might be the top half might be Thatcher and the bottom half might be uh, Princess Diana. And when you put the two halves in alignment, it's really tough to see whose identity is in either one of those halves because those two halves fuse to form a new face. Mm. And we just represent that entire face as a whole, and we're not able to match it to any of the faces that we've got in memory. On the other hand, if you shift the bottom face just slightly off so that the two halves don't align anymore, it's easy to recognize whose faces those two are coming from, whose, whose two half faces they are. Um, now, that might not be all that surprising, but what makes it particularly interesting is when you take the face and turn it upside down now, aligning the top and the bottom halves of the face doesn't interfere with performance. People are just as good at recognizing that upside down top half of the face when it's aligned as when it's misaligned. So it seems that that fusion doesn't happen in upside down faces. And so given that we're dealing with the exact same stimulus with an upside down face, that's really nice evidence that upright faces really process in a qualitatively different fashion than other sorts of stimuli, including inverted faces. So it's possible um, that in prosopagnosia there is some issue with this fusion um, where they... Well, that's... Yeah, we didn't find any difference. Hmm. Interesting. So I guess jury's still out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so since when you and me walk around and, and we interact with people, we generally can put a face to the name, you know, and if I'm remembering a friend, I might first remember their face and then all those different, uh, facts about them, those associations will come to mind, like their name and mm-hmm. how we met all that. Do you know, uh, how, I guess, relationships are like for people when they don't have a immediate face to put to the name? Do they identify them more as voices or as, I mean, maybe you don't know, but it seems really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we hear, you know, prosopagnosics certainly have a tougher time in relationships because they have trouble with face recognition. Now all of us uh, rely on, non-face cues to identity. So you might see somebody walking down the hall and you can recognize them even though you haven't seen their face. You know, you're behind them. Or you might just get a glimpse of somebody's hair. You might still be able to recognize them. But faces are really our most reliable source of information. And so prosopagnosics have to rely on those other sources of information more than we do. Um, And some of them tend to focus on particular uh, alternative cues. So some might say, I'm going to really focus on the hair. Or a guy I wrote my dissertation on um, focused on people's pants and their genes. And he was really good at recognizing people's genes. So each time he encountered people, he'd look to their, their genes to figure out who they were. And I remember one time we were walking along and he said, 
Oh, yeah, I remember last time you were up here, you had those 505s with the scuff on the back of the right leg. (laughs) I had to go check my pants when I got home to see if that was even there, and he was right about it. So he was really tuned into that. Um, So they come come up with alternative strategies, but it's just not as effective usually Mm -hmm. as recognizing the face. Hmm. But it is pretty, I mean, exceptional, the tiny things you can start to notice when you need to compensate for uh, things that you lack. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that Bill was in trouble, though, when people changed their pants. So right. it was far from a foolproof strategy. <laughs> um, so it, it seems that there there really is no visual deficit. There's no memory deficit in these people, right? It's solely face related. Well, they don't have a general memory deficit. So it's not that they're mm-hmm. bad at you know memorizing information in general. Some of them, though, might have problems just with face memory or might have problems just with visual memory. Others probably have problems that start off in perceptual problems that are dedicated to face processing. Face processing involves a number of different stages, and you, you know, a problem at any one of those stages can disrupt the ability to recognize faces. And so could be face memory in some people, could be face perception in other people. So the idea being, if, if you don't see the face very detailed in a way in the first place, you can't remember it very detailed versus if you just, like, you can maybe process it as detailed as it is, but when you remember it, if you can't remember it, you just don't see it. Exactly, right. Okay, so different areas where things can go wrong. And so we don't really know whether all people with presopagnosia have the same, um, I guess, behavioral manifestations of it, do they? Or maybe not behavioral, but I guess processing. Yeah, that's right. So behaviorally, sort of the the core problem is just it's a face memory problem. Mm -hmm. And for the prosopagnosics, it often doesn't matter for where in the chain of processing that that problem arises. (laughs) But we have evidence that in some people we see perceptual problems. For example, uh, Martin Eimer, who's a... uh, neuroscientist in London, he uses EEG to measure the processes that are occurring uh, during face processing. And he can see that these processes aren't normal in an awful lot of prosopagnosics already by 170 milliseconds after a stimulus has been presented. So those are those are perceptual processes at those point that are not working normally. Um, some, though, have normal processes or appear to have normal processes around 170 milliseconds. So you might think their problems are, are first appearing later on in the process. So, again, there is a lot of variability in face recognition. Yes. So, you know, we've talked about the specialized machinery we have for processing faces and, and how I guess that, that can sometimes go wrong. Uh but there are other cases of it going super, super right, uh, this enhancements in face recognition. And you mentioned that earlier, the other extreme of face recognition, super recognizers. And I know you were one of the authors on the 2009 paper that first coined the term super recognizers. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, what could you tell us more about what a super recognizer is? Yeah, so, you know, they are sort of what they sound like. These people are just fantastic when it comes to recognizing facial identity. Um, they're the sort of people, they'll have stories. They say, you know, I was in a train station in a town I wasn't familiar with, and I saw somebody, and I said, I went to second grade with that guy, and I haven't seen him since then, and they go up and they confirm it. Um, or, 
they watch TV and they're frequently recognizing extras from other shows that they've seen. And so um, they're, they're frequently identifying people that just the rest of us wouldn't have a chance with. There was a, a Fox show called Superhuman, this game show where people who have amazing perceptual and cognitive abilities came on. One of the supers that we work with was on that show. And Luke looked at, let's say, 120 people in the audience. He was able to sort of glance at each person. And then he turned around and three of the people in the audience were taken out and replaced by three other people. And then everybody in the audience moved their, changed their seat. And then Luke turned back around and had to find the three people out of this group of a hundred some people who were new. He named all three and didn't make any false alarms. So he just nailed it. Uh, so they're really fantastic when it comes to faces. That's crazy. And yeah. it's, it's like, I mean, it's like a snapshot, but of faces. I don't know if like it's, I know that memory is not like that, but it seems like photographic almost. You know, there is certainly the fate of, they have to have really strong visual memories. I was emailing with the guy who was on the game show just the other day. And he said to me, he said, it's not just a visual thing that I'm getting from people. I feel like I'm really, when I look at them, I'm really feeling their identity. So I'm feeling sort of how confident this person is, how trustworthy this person is, how dominant this person is. They're really sort of getting to read on their personality. And he says that information really helps me the next time I see them sort of hmm. know who that person is. So there's a lot going on. I don't think it's just visual. Right. It seems like maybe they're picking up on subtle emotional cues that most of us are blind to. Yes, Yes. I, either that or just attributing emotional things that help them with memory, whether or not they actually are true or not. That's a good point. They might not have much insight into how they're actually doing it. I mean, most of us don't know how we recognize faces after all. Right. We, ju we just yeah. do it. So you had mentioned that, that there may be some evidence that they have better, better visual processing or visual memory in general. So, I mean, could it be that they're actually seeing minute details more than others might or do you think they're maybe just paying more attention to faces yeah my guess is that the supers are super because they're good at every step of the way and so i think that their perception is is superior to other people's their memory processes are superior to others and maybe as i you know suggested they're they're encoding more information than others are beyond just the visual appearance of the face. So I think there's a lot of things that make them so excellent. Mm -hmm. And do they seem to use any any different strategies? We've talked about like holistic processing strategies and how prosopagnosia people with that lack these strategies, but do they seem to to use different strategies or is it all automatic really? Yeah, I don't, if by strategies you mean conscious strategies, you know, deliberate techniques that they're using, I don't think so. I think it just comes naturally to them. They don't talk about, you know, an aha moment when they figured out how to recognize faces extremely well. Mm -hmm. So so let's really delve into, uh, I guess, what's going on in, in the brains of people with both prosopagnosia and super recognition skills. We've talked about those uh, at least, you know, more than five to, you know, over 10 potential face patches and processing areas in the brain. Um, do we know what areas are specifically affected in uh, both conditions? Um, so when it comes to acquired prosopagnosia, there's one view out there that suggests that, apparently uh, not acquired prosopagnosia, developmental prosopagnosia. So people From who birth. never okay. never suffered any brain damage yet, they're very bad with face recognition. Mm -hmm. There's a, one view out there that suggests that the area, face areas further back in the brain, the posterior face areas, are functioning normally, and there's there are poor connections to the more anterior areas of the brain. Um, 
And then those anterior areas don't function normally because they're not getting the input that they should be getting from posterior areas. Um, that's one view. My lab, though, has data now suggesting that areas throughout the face network are not responding normally in developmental prosopagnosia. Um, so we see posterior areas not functioning. We can look at all. We, what we do is we look at six areas in each hemisphere. Um, we do this in both the left and the right hemisphere. So we're looking at a total of 12 face selective areas. When we look in the right hemisphere, and the right hemisphere is especially important for, for face processing, we see that all six of those areas show reduced face selectivity. And what I mean by that is if we compare the response to faces and objects in these areas, we see that the response to faces is weaker in the prosopagnosics than it is in the controls. The response to objects is about the same. And so there, these areas aren't as face-selective in the prosopagnosics. If we, if we run statistical tests on these differences, we find that in four out of the six areas in the right hemisphere, they're significantly weaker in the prosopagnosics. So, and that there's no, we don't see that the anterior areas are more likely to be reduced in face selectivity than the posterior areas. If we look in the left hemisphere again, the, the prosopagnosics again all show weaker responses in the areas. Only one of them was statistically significant, but if you look across all of them, you can see the trend's always there. So um, we think that if you look across the face processing network, there's weakness in all these different areas in prosopagnosics. We, we can also see other problems in prosopagnosics, so we can see structural differences using MRI. And you, doing that, you can see that there are there's reduced gray matter in a number of right temporal areas, the same areas that correspond to these areas that we're looking at functionally. Um, and we can also see some decrease in some of the white matter tracks that carry face information around. Well, can you explain uh, what gray and white matter are? Sure. So gray matter is where the cells that are actually doing the computations are, um, whereas white matter are these fiber bundles that carry information um, from one group of cells to another group of cells. And using something called diffusion tensor imaging, people are able to measure some of the larger um, axon tracks, these white matter bundles um, that connect different regions of the brain to each other. Okay, so so these these specialized areas just have more cells potentially, or more active cells, and stronger connections in in, in normal brains. Yeah, okay. exactly. So so basically, everything that we can measure fairly well, we're seeing abnormalities. So we see abnormalities in the functional response with fMRI. We see structural abnormalities, and if we use EEG. We can also see that there are abnormalities in the way prosopagnosics respond to faces compared to normals. Hmm. Um, now, now that you ask about supers, we know basic, we know nothing about the neural basis of super recognition. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've got a study right now going where we're bringing super recognizers to MIT and we're doing functional and structural scanning with them to try to address these same questions that we have addressed already with the developmental prosopagnosics. My guess is it's going to be, so they're going to be the opposite end of the spectrum when compared to the prosopagnosics. So they'll probably show greater face selectivity. They'll probably show, they might show you know, thicker white matter bundles, but we'll have to see. Yeah, that gets at another question I had because they really are, uh, prosopagnosia and super recognizers are portrayed as, as the opposite. And, and behaviorally that makes sense, but I didn't know if there was anything neurologically to, to underscore that. Yeah, there's nothing known at this point. Yeah, I mean, we've got data from four people and we do see what appears to be enhanced face selectivity in them, but it's a small sample at this point. Mm-hmm. Since, uh, I guess your guys is, uh, coining of the term super recognition and uh, really bringing these people out of the shadows and into the public. <laughs> it's gotten a lot of media attention. 
Um, and, you know, in, in 2015, uh, the police force in, in Greater London started a whole official team of super recognizers devoted to reviewing surveillance footage. So when you and your colleagues really put this condition on the map, could you have ever imagined the response? Um, you know, actually, I mean, yeah, I think I could have because we saw how good these people were. And it was pretty easy to see that there were um, uses for these people by law enforcement and, you know, other security sort of operations. So. I'm a little disappointed that U.S. departments haven't picked up and done the same sort of thing that they've done in London um, because they've had great, great success in London. Right. There's a great New Yorker article that they they put out that really went into the the day to day experience of a super recognizer uh, on on the workforce um, and talks about just how much better humans are at recognizing faces than computers. Yes. Um, yeah, there's no comparison at this point. You know, who knows what it's going to be like 10, 15 years from now. But right now, these super recognizers are far better than computer systems mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing how complex facial recognition is, do you think that, that artificial intelligence will be able to ever approximate, uh, you know, naturalistic facial recognition? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I would expect they will be able to. I don't have any feel for how soon that's going to be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't see why they couldn't you know, replicate the same computational processes that are going on in our brains in a computer. Until then, we should start employing more super recognizers in the U.S. and Canada then. Absolutely. And they should bring me in to help them identify them. <laughs> I'll help start the task force. Yeah. My rates are very reasonable. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today and sharing your expertise in all things facial. Thank you. If you guys are interested in learning more about Dr. Brad Duchesne's research, you can navigate to faceblind.org. And if you didn't catch that, you can find the link to that and more about Dr. Duchesne on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be right back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Our next guest is Dr. Matteo Martini, a psychologist and lecturer at the University of East London. His current research is on pain modulation in virtual environments. Uh, But in the past, a few years ago, he published a paper with colleagues entitled, Is That Me or My Twin? Lack of Self-Face Recognition Advantage in Identical Twins. Even though this study was published in 2015, it's been receiving some belated attention since it was awarded the 2017 Ig Nobel Prize in Cognition. And for those of you who are unaware, the Ig Nobel, the Ig Nobel's honor achievements that, as they say, first make people laugh and then make them think, uh, which seems an appropriate characterization of this study. Dr. Martini, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jessica. Hello. So tell us, what was this study all about? Well, the study is basically about the, uh, we, we investigated the self-recognition in monozygotic twins. Identical and, twins, uh, correct? Yeah, identical twins, exactly, yeah. Um, so basically what we did here is to recruit 
couples of monozygotic twins, as well as a subjects that were really um, connected to them, like cousins, really close friends, um, other siblings, to work as uh, a control. Okay, um, what we uh, did is. We took photos of them, of their faces, in, in, uh, on one day, and uh, on another day, we presented their faces to the, the uh, monozygotic twins and to the uh, control subject. We presented them with these uh, three faces, so the, their face, the uh, co-twins face, and the control subject's face. These uh, visual stimuli were presented in a, in a very fast way. So we're talking about milliseconds here. And their task was really simple, was uh, basically to identify as quick as possible uh, the, um, the identity of the, the person of the face that was presented each time by pressing one of uh, one key on, uh, on a keyboard, basically. So, so what yeah. what would a, a normal control, how would they perform on this? Someone who really had a very unique face and, and isn't going to confuse it with anyone else's face. Yeah, the, um, the role of uh, the, the controls was uh, that basically we, uh, we needed to check whether, for instance, uh, familiarity, just uh, familiarity uh, accounted for a better uh, face recognition and uh, also we took into account the uh, uh, emotional um, uh, meaning of, uh, of the faces. So, for instance, um, a stranger's face is not that uh, emotionally meaningful uh, to you um, compared to uh, your brother's face or your cousin's face or your, um, your best friend's face. Okay, so the idea is that if I'm one of a twin, I'm going to see my face, my twin's face, and a close friend's face. So the close friend is someone that I'm also very familiar and close with, uh, just like my my twin. Yes, yes. So you're, okay. you're seeing your your uh, if you are a twin, uh, one of the two twins, you're seeing uh, your face, your your co-twin's face, and another face that has a you're very familiar with, and also. Um, that has a very um, um, great, a very big emotional balance for you. Okay. So what were your major findings in this research? Okay. So, yeah, um, first of all, we have to uh, say why we did this research. And we mm -hmm. did this research because there are a lot of studies out there in the scientific literature about face recognition. Uh, there are really many, many, many studies uh, on, on this topic. But we found out that there were uh, no studies trying to address whether um, the, uh, the, the face recognition, self-face recognition, was somewhat impaired in identical twins. And why we uh, hypothesized that? Well, because, uh, as you know, identical twins uh, share many um, uh, physical features uh, between themselves. So... The uh, the resemblance there is is really really high, and we know that uh, resemblance can uh, be a factor that modulates face uh, face recognition. And actually, what we found in our study that is that um, the uh, monozygotic twins, these uh, identical twins, lacked this uh, 
so-called self-face advantage, which is uh, reported um, vastly in the in the uh, scientific literature. That basically uh, means that you're better in in recognizing your own face uh, compared to other faces, uh, even very familiar faces. Right. So you, you're faster. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this doesn't happen uh, within the twin couples. Uh, so this was our our major finding. So um, identical twins seem to lack this self-face uh, advantage. <clears throat> so we uh, we found no differences in terms of uh, performance when the uh, uh, twin faces were recognizing uh, the, their own faces. Um, while, for instance, the control subjects I was telling you about uh, were much better in, in recognizing their own faces as compared to the uh, twins' faces. So you might think, all right, but this is just because um, because uh, the control subject ha- has to identify uh, his or her face from uh, two very similar uh, other faces, right? So right. it could be this could be due just uh, at the perceptual level um, could be due just to uh, a difference uh, in, in the um, physical features of the stimuli that were presented, right? But right. we found with a further analysis that uh, twins were still better than the control subject in identifying, on average, their faces. What they were not good at, or uh, what they um, showed, anyway, is that they still lacked this self-face advantage. So it's almost like they were better at recognizing their faces as a unit. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Which brings and up... A- and actually, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, it, it has been uh, suggested in, in the literature and and. We also know from uh, from our own experience that uh, twin couples ha- have a, um, a very strong identity as a couple more than as an individual. Right. So this gets into the question of, of the representation of self. And, and you alluded earlier mm-hmm. to um, some of the, the prior research and on twins and in self-face recognition, but there's no self-face recognition advantage in twins. So, mm-hmm. so what is, could you describe a little bit more of, of what the self-face recognition advantage is in the first place? Yeah, so the uh, self-face advantage uh, is, um, is basically indexed in, in the scientific literature as a, um, a faster response in recognizing your own face um, compared to uh, when you're presented with other faces. But, uh, we, we're talking of other very familiar faces, okay? So, so we're, we're not talking of a, of a you know, difference between your face and somebody that you barely know because that would be uh, too obvious that you're better at recognizing your own face. We're talking of uh, a difference here between uh, the recognition on your own face uh, compared to uh, the recognition of uh, another very familiar face. So it's not just um, the time of exposure that you had with a certain face there, but uh, your own face is also um, very important for the uh, the definition of your bodily self, right? So you actually the, the face is uh, probably the uh, 
the most important feature uh, of the uh, of the body itself that characterizes the, the body itself. So it also uh, underlies the concept of uh, more general identity. Mm-hmm. And and this in in the um, identical twin couple uh, is a bit uh, blurrier, let's say. So the uh, the boundaries between me and you in the in the in this uh, couple are a bit yeah um, like overlapping, let's say, if we want. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, it's almost as if the representation of self is is stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, in in non twins, um, whereas it's like you said, overlapping when you you have a twin that you're both very close with and look very similar to. Well, at least when you, I I don't want to you know we we cannot uh, go too far you know with with the uh, these findings in terms of um, in interpretations and uh, um, and also yeah conclusions and and, and, and implications. But what we uh, can can say here um, is that uh, is that yes, at least at the perceptual level, um, identical twins may be you know uh, uh, may be in, uh, a little bit in trouble, let's say, um, compared to uh, let's say normal siblings when they have to identify uh, themselves. And actually, anecdotally. Um, we know, for instance, one of the uh, co-authors, uh, her, her mother, um, is an identical twin, and um, she used to uh, to tell um, uh, her daughter that uh, when she was young, uh, she uh, actually uh, she was used to, to mistake uh, herself for her sister uh, by looking at the the, uh, the picture of them. So. Wow. Yeah, and, and this is not the only case. A lot of uh, identical twins report this. So, especially when they're younger, um, they tend to mistake themselves. Um, from a social perspective, uh, we might say that uh, not only because they uh, share um, their, you know, 100% of, of their genes, and so they, they uh, also at a phenotypical uh, level, they, they share um the uh physical features so they are really resembling one another but also the, as i was saying at the social level uh these um confusion sometimes is boosted by the fact that uh, um parents and and relatives uh tend to treat them as a couple to uh for instance uh um provide them with the uh identical clothes uh, and uh, you know to to treat them as they were uh, interchangeable. I don't know if I'm I'm explaining myself here. Yeah, t- uh, definitely. Um, so I mean, to continue with this idea of how I guess um, social context can can modulate that self recognition. Um, in the study, you you actually looked at uh, how twins rated themselves, how similarly they thought they looked to one another. Mm-hmm. And, and how that connected yeah. to their performance. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, yeah sure. So um, on one hand, we found this uh, lack of uh, self-face advantage. Uh, but on the other hand, we also had other measurements. So for instance, we asked them um, how uh, how much they perceived that they, they were seeing that with their cotrine. 
Um, and also, we provided them with a, an attachment uh, style questionnaire. And so what we found is that uh, their... Uh, they tend to, to mistake themselves uh, more if they perceive uh, themselves more similar to, to their co-twin. Uh, this is something subjective. We're not talking of uh, a similarity that is an objective level of similarity, all right? Uh, we're talking of uh, a perceived uh, similarity. So the more I perceive myself similar, uh, more resembling to my co-twin, uh, the more mistake I will do when, when uh, you know, I'm about to recognize and, and, and tell myself apart from, from my co-twin face. Okay? So it's possible uh, that, that a co-twin or that separate twins could perform differently based on their, their relative subjective experiences of similarity to their corresponding twin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems that uh, the level of, simi- of similarity, the... Um, uh, level of perceived similarity uh, modulate uh, the uh, self-face recognition. So again, uh, the more I perceive myself to be similar to my co-twin, and uh, the more likely I will be, you know, I, I will make mistakes. Mm. But also, what we what we uh, found and uh, interested is interestingly is that there um, the lack of self-face advantage was also modulated by a, um, a component of this uh, attachment uh, um, style uh, scale that I told you we administered them. Um, so what we found is that uh, if their attachment style was more insecure, uh, they tend to, tended to, to uh, basically uh, do more um, uh, mistakes, to do more errors. Uh, when it came to uh, to do the recognition task, and uh, we interpreted that as um, in this way. So the the uh, co twins that were more attached, more dependent on uh, such uh, an emotionally relevant figure as their uh, as it was their co twin, uh, they were more prone to identify um, to 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 see their co twin instead of themselves, all right? While on mm-hmm. the opposite, the, uh, the co-twins that were more independent uh, tended to see uh, more often themselves instead of, uh, instead of uh, the co-twin. Wow. So, uh, again, this is more of, of how uh, just personality and opinions and subjective uh, matters can influence actual visual recognition. Yes, there the, the were um, hints from again from the uh, scientific literature that there's some personality traits uh, could um, modulate self, uh, well, face recognition in general. For instance, we know that extroverts, uh, not surprisingly, um, tend to uh, recognize uh, more faces compared to introverts. And um, and also that uh, in in some uh, schizophrenic patients, so in some patients with schizophrenia, um, face recognition might be impaired. So uh, we know that personality traits can also can modulate face recognition. This is a, a really interesting because when we talk about face recognition, I think we often just feel like, you know, it's all we see visual stimuli in the world and that travels 
up through our brain until it becomes some sort of final picture. Um, and that any differences between people would maybe be dependent on something along that way, but but not not any sort of emotional uh, experience or opinions. So it's really interesting uh, that that personality and, and detention style can really change uh, your perceptual ability to recognize faces. Yes, yes, actually it is just yeah, but well, uh, we know from um, uh, neuroimaging studies that um, related to this. That, for instance, uh, seeing your partner's face activates um, more brain areas than seeing uh, your your own face does, right? And um, and also the uh, neural networks uh, underpinning the uh, processing of of emotions are activated depending on on the face that you're looking at. So face recognition entails. Uh, uh, both at the neural level and also at the psychological level, um, many different uh, areas that uh, come together to shape this uh, apparently only perceptual uh, phenomenon. That's fascinating. Uh, so I have a, a question then that I've been wondering about, which is if we seem to have really good, you know, in general, self-face recognition, at least if, if we're not um, a member of, you know, a, a twin unit. Um, and even twin units do, as you said, just not, uh, they do, you said, have better face recognition than uh, of their unit, even relative to other faces of their family members or, or close friends. Uh, so, so it seems that our, our face recognition, though, is, is very tied to this intimate knowledge of, of what our faces look like, um, which which now we know because of, of photography and and mirrors, you know, the ever presence of, of our faces when we mm-hmm. wake up in the morning and then we look in the mirror. And so I was, I, you know, I, yeah. I went to look into when mirrors were invented. It was, I guess, in the late 1300s, early 1400s is at least when they started to come onto the world stage. And even then, only the rich people could get them. So how do you think just self-face recognition or perception of self and identity do you have any uh, opinions on how that might have changed when when we actually started to understand what we looked like? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I don't know. Probably uh, mirrors were invented even even before that. We know, for instance, that uh, glasses were were present in the uh, Roman era already. So I imagine that uh, they could somehow. I, I don't. I'm not sure about mirrors, but uh, for sure, glasses were already. Um, were already there during Roman times. So I guess that they were um, kind of used to see some sort of reflection of their own faces. But before that, yes, uh, your question is, is uh, actually uh, very interesting. And I don't know, we, we should run a study. Because you know, we, we would need to, to go back in time or probably just... Um, address this question by study face recognition in um, the few of, uh, groups of people that are still um, isolated and, um, and are living in, in tribes in the Amazon forest, for instance, uh, that do not use mirrors or, or other means to, to see the reflection of, of themselves. 
Well, you certainly are still a scientist, (laughs) ever the scientist. It's just interesting that you, uh, you know, are are able to come up with an experiment to try to test this. It's just a very scientific way to (laughs) approach it. Yeah, the the idea was yours, Dan. Well, um, just to 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 wrap up, um, you like we mentioned earlier, you were awarded the you and your group um, were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize um, uh, mm-hmm. for this paper just now in in twenty seventeen. Um, did you know what the Ig Nobels were? Did you have any idea it was coming? Did you know you'd been nominated? Uh, all right, yeah. So, first of all, we, we were really happy and we, we didn't believe when we got this uh, email from one of the former uh, winners of, of this uh, award and uh, we thought it was a joke. Um, <laughs> I, I, I probably uh, heard about it in the past, but uh, at that moment I wasn't, let's say, so familiar with it, while my co-authors all uh, knew uh, this this award and we're really really happy from the very first moment um, and and then yes we uh, we got in contact with uh, um, with the organizer of of this uh, of this award and uh, ended up um, presenting although very shortly our study in front of one thousand people in the uh, um, in a theater in, in, in Harvard, uh, this September was really, um, emotionally, uh, I'd say, um, challenging. <laughs> well, it, it's really fascinating stuff. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your research. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. If you guys are interested in learning more about Matteo Martini's research, you can navigate to the show notes on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Hello, this is Rochelle Saunders. Just before we sign off today, since it's the holiday season and a time of year when many of us will sit down and make decisions about what charities to give to and what organizations to support in 2018, I wanted to give a couple of shout outs. Before I talk about some well-deserving science and evidence-based charities, I want to also shout out to all the science news organizations out there who work hard to keep all us nerds up to date on the latest and greatest science news. It takes great journalists, editors, and fact-checkers a lot of time to create the content on places like Scientific American, Discovery, Science News, Wired, and NPR, among others, that we mostly enjoy for free. They are often our teachers, helping us understand more quickly what may have taken them days to wrap their heads around. The work these people at science news organizations do often inspires episodes on this and other podcasts. Without their upfront work, we here wouldn't be able to do what we do. So if you spend a lot of time perusing any one of these sites or other great science news platforms, consider finding some space in your 2018 budget to support one of them financially as well. Sign up for a subscription. In a lot of cases, you'll get extra content, which is great. But mostly a subscription does for them the same thing our Patreons and PayPal supporters do for us. It helps keep the lights on. So this year, consider supporting a science news site. There are so many, and it's impossible for most of us to subscribe to them all, but we can all pick one. Our favorite, one at random, that one that seems to be struggling, and support them. In addition to the fine people working the science news beat, 
We'd also like to offer an assortment of science-related charities that will happily take your money. While we haven't exhaustively researched these organizations, we think they deserve a mention for their fine work, but we also recommend you check them out before donating. You'll be able to find the full list with links to their websites in our show notes at scienceforthepeople.ca. The Union of Concerned Scientists is an alliance of over 400,000 citizens and scientists who believe facts, not ideology, should drive policy decisions. They put rigorous, independent science to work to solve our planet's most pressing problems and combine technical analysis with advocacy to create innovative, practical solutions for a healthy, safe, and sustainable future. They are on the front lines trying to prevent major cuts to governmental departments focusing on public and environmental health and could use your support. Support. There's also Evidence for Democracy, which advocates for the transparent use of science and evidence in public policy and government decision-making in Canada. It's easy for Canadian science news to get lost in the noise, especially these days with Canadian news media organizations folding left and right. And Evidence for Democracy is a great way to keep abreast of what's going on north of the 49th. In the UK, there's Sense About Science, which works in partnership with scientific bodies, research publishers, policymakers, the public, and the media to change public discussions about science. Their award-winning public campaigns share the tools of scientific thinking and scrutiny, and their International Voice of Young Science Network engages hundreds of early career researchers in public debates about research and evidence. If you'd like to help promote science awareness and understanding, you can give to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The AAAS is an international non-profit organization dedicated to advancing science around the world. They work to foster education and increase public engagement in science and technology for everyone, and to strengthen and diversify the science and technology workforce. Helping to encourage interest and expand opportunities for women in science is an issue that's close to our show's collective heart. In the U.S., the Association for Women in Science and the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology promote and encourage women and girls in science, engineering, and technology. Lots of fantastic charities are out there bringing the wonder of science to children. In Canada, we have Let's Talk Science, an award-winning national organization. They deliver science learning programs and services that turn children and youth onto science and keep them engaged in lifelong learning. Engineers Without Borders is an international coalition of dozens of national member groups that make use of their diverse technical expertise to solve critical problems affecting the health of our planet. And of course, there's also Doctors Without Borders, an international humanitarian organization providing independent, impartial assistance around the world to victims of natural disasters or armed conflict. They provide care on the basis of need and advocate for improved medical treatments and protocols. If we miss your favorite science charity, do post a link and description in the comments on this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting science and science news in whatever way you can. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, 
where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 